This is After the Last Dance. I am Tate Frazier, and I am joined by a Bulls teammate of legendary Michael Jordan, the star of The Last Dance. That is, of course, the kid, BJ Armstrong. BJ, the first two episodes dropped tonight. First off, we're going we're gonna to get to the, the nitty-gritty of all this, but what are your first thoughts after seeing uh, the first two episodes of The Last Dance? Well, it was very interesting uh, in storytelling to kind of get the character set up, right? So everyone can kind of get familiar with, you know, who is Michael Jordan? Um, what was the foundation? What was the story? Uh, getting these parents and kind of really laying you kind of like, you know, how he developed into the person that we all saw and we all admired as a player. Um, I thought one of the more interesting characters was kind of the development of the Chicago Bulls. And uh, in mm -hmm. particular, you know, Jerry Krause. And um, so, you know, there was a lot of introductions to characters. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how three and four, one and two kind of was the intro. And uh, now let's move on into the meat and potatoes of the story. We got meat and potatoes. We got a lot to talk about. But first off, I want to talk about that introduction. And the introduction comes with 1984. And Jordan goes, of course, to the Chicago Bulls. He had just played in the Olympics under coach Bob Knight. Bob Knight said he's the best basketball player he's ever seen. Everyone's seen those clips of Bob Knight talking about that. And uh, Jordan goes to the Chicago Bulls. He's the third pick. We know the story about Clyde Drexler. We know about Sam Bowie. We know about Akeem Olajuwon, of course, being the... Uh, he was the seven-footer. Everyone was like, well, if Jordan was seven feet tall, he'd be great. Right. That, that's the guy we want. Uh, of course, in 1984, Jordan comes to the city. He promised Chicago championships, um, and then he delivers on it, right? And that is sort of the the opening uh, of who is Michael Jordan and, and what his sort of prophetic life was in the world of basketball, right? Yeah, you saw that, and um, really was interesting because it made it made sense. You know, um, you know Akeem Olajuwon, and the way the mentality of the NBA was at that time, right? You were trying to build around a big. Um, and then suddenly with Jordan, a player like Jordan, it, it shifted to where uh, it opened you up to the realm of possibilities that it was possible, it is possible to build around a, a smaller player, even though he was 6'6". Um, and I thought that was interesting. But, you know, Clive Drexler was a great player in his own right. So I could see the understanding of why they did what they did. But you know what? You know, uh, Jordan was a phenomenal talent, an incredible talent to pass up. But I could see their thinking and their understanding. You know, I had an opportunity to play against Sam Bowie. Sam Bowie was a really, really, really good basketball player. And mm -hmm. uh, it made sense in that moment. Um, now you look back on it, you know, there's always second guessing. But it made sense that, you know, those two players would be taking one and two in the draft. And it, uh, they showed the SI cover, and of course it's an iconic cover, and it's a star is born, and it's Michael Jordan, and, and it's basically the beginning of the saga of who is Michael Jordan. And we see Arsenio Hall, you know, the, the, the sighting early on. We see Dave Letterman, uh, you know, we see all that stuff early on. And then we see the mastermind. We see a man that you know, and that is the sensei himself, and that's Phil Jackson. And one of the early things we see in this documentary in the first episode is Phil Jackson talking about creating an image that people want to be a part of. And that's what Phil was able to create in Chicago with those Bulls teams. And can you speak to that with, with what Phil was able to create as far as, I want to be a part of something that's going on in Chicago with Michael and these other guys? Well, you know, I don't know about the creation and, and I, 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 I must have <laughs> missed that part. Uh, but no. Um, it, it was all ideated. Well, I, you know I, I think I mean? what, it was through I, meditation. You know, the one thing about Phil is, 
Phil had a, a great understanding of people, right? And mm-hmm. his personality, being able to function with all of the things that were going on at the time, right? Uh, clearly, uh, I think you got a glimpse of all of the things that was going on outside of the court. And in spite of all of the things that were being said, some in the media, some was, you know, there was the management, there were the coaches, there were the players. There was a level of professionalism that I just, I respected, right? And that was very obvious from the moment that I walked in the door is that no matter what's going on, no matter how you feel about someone, check your emotions at the door, right? You have every right to feel the way you feel. But when you play, don't let that get in the way of what we can't, what we're, what we're doing here. So, I, I think mm-hmm. the one thing about Phil is, you know, in the end, we had the greatest player. We had mm-hmm. we had an advantage as a team, and we had a coach who understood that. You know what? We're gonna ride with you. You're gonna ride with us. And uh, he really, when I say he, Phil Jackson really created a us versus the world mentality. That was his coaching style. He really put a pressure. He really put pressure on those guys in the locker room to come together as one and think as one. And um, I don't know about all the other the images and all of the other stuff. I mean, maybe I I I wasn't aware of it, <laughs> but I will say this: as far as delivering and performing. Uh, the coaches and those players and with the organization, we all did what we came to do. And and uh, that was, to me, that was the most valuable part or the thing that I respected most about playing there in my years there playing in Chicago. So let's get into it. So here we are. We got uh, Michael Jordan has the press conference. And he says, so the, the, the pinpoint, the, the moment in time, the watershed moment that we have here is the 1997 summer going into the 1997-1998 season. The Bulls are going for their second three-peat, right? That's where we are. Jordan says, we're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it. There's talks of a rebuild. Jerry Krause is uh, fishing with Tim Floyd. And Phil Jackson is sitting around, and Scottie Pippen is injured at the time. Meanwhile, this is the biggest show in the world. And uh, somehow Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause come to an agreement. They sign a one-year deal. Phil Jackson decides to, to come back and stay with his team. Michael Jordan, of course, had stated to the world uh, that the biggest obstacle to him, uh, and he looked up at the front office. Um, and this is, you know, this is where we are at that point in time. And, of course, BJ, you were in, you were in Charlotte. Right. But you obviously understood the situation in Chicago. What 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 did it feel like from the outside looking in, being on, a, on another team, but understand the environment there in Chicago? Well, you know, I, I think it was part of how I was introduced into the NBA. Like, mm-hmm. like you you have to you have to remember back then there were things that were kept in the locker room, right? Mm-hmm. And things back then are a lot different the way they are today, right? Today. It is the fans, you know, the fans' exposure. They feel that they have a right to know everything about everyone at all times. Back then, I mean, I'm just being honest. I really didn't care what was going on off the court. It didn't matter to me, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Performing on the floor was going to trump anything that was happening off the court. So why even concern myself with something that had no effect on the game? The only thing that mattered was the outcome of the game. And as a player, you have an ability to affect, directly affect the outcome of the game. So I could care less what was being said. I could care less about uh, 
who was doing what because when you got on that floor the only thing that mattered was to win the game so you know i and i had i had i had seen this firsthand i uh, michael jordan could care less you know like you know one of the things that was interesting was you know okay all right we all we all agree scotty probably could have got the surgery earlier but okay when you get done scotty we'll be ready to play and we'll be ready to win like like that's most coaches or most organizations or most people will be like, Oh, how could he do this? But you know what? That's the level of professionalism that was there. And that what was expected. So you can see the idea that, you know, a Jordan led team was okay. We're missing Scottie Pippen. But guess what? We're going to find another way to win. End of discussion. Mm-hmm. So I was, that's the kind of the way I learned how to play in this league. I, it just it just didn't matter but maybe that was the mentality back then you know today that's probably drama or whatever but honestly i don't think guys really care i know i certainly didn't care i i just like all right whatever uh, i'll see you guys tomorrow one two three let's go <laughs> yeah exactly let's go and then uh you know phil jackson basically like you said he was able to do these things where he takes these outside factors and is able to put them together and formulate a plan to say this is the enemy, the outside. Let's come to, together and defeat this. And obviously going into the 97-98 year, the enemy is time. And the fact that they have a one-year you know, uh, amount of time together, this is their last run, this is the last dance. And that's where the name of documentary obviously comes right. from. Phil Jackson calls the last season the last dance. And they go to Paris, and Michael Jordan is obviously the biggest star in the world at this point. He's walking around Paris, and he has a beret on his head. And uh, David Stern, they cut to David Stern, and David Stern's like, and of course, you know, Michael's wearing a beret, as is Michael. And, uh, you know, it was a funny little quip there, but it also speaks to the fact that how big of a star Michael was at that time where he could get away with the fact, I'm just going to go to Paris. I I know a little bit of French, but I'm going to wear this beret (laughs) and I'm going to walk around because, you know, I'm the man. I'm Michael. And uh, everybody wants to be like Yeah, you know, well, that that, that was him. He, (laughs) you know, Michael did have a a big personality. And, um, you know, he, he constantly... You know, he had this energy and this inner confidence that you can see, right? And um, mm. and he pulled it off. I don't know how many people could pull that off, but he certainly did. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh, we, we got the quote where, you know, Jordan is as good at his job, which is being a basketball player, as anyone is at any other job. Because that was, you know, we saw James Jordan. We saw the clip of, you know, Dolores, of course, the beautiful Dolores, who is like an angel, mm-hmm. obviously, whenever she speaks. And, you know, James talks about the fact that the way to get Michael to do anything is basically to say that he can't do it. And uh, as a younger sibling myself in a very large family in North Carolina and Michael being the same way, you have a lot of people that beat you down. When you're younger sibling, <laughs> you, know? you, you got no Is that a say. North Carolina you know, thing or like, is that a... Uh... It's a family thing. It's a family thing. thing. It's, 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 a, it's a family thing because wisdom comes with age, and uh, until you have age, you can just shut up. That's usually the rule. Right. And uh, that's how that's how Michael said he was fighting for time with Larry Jordan, his brother, who obviously was a magnificent basketball player, and uh, just that whole mentality that Jordan had to be as good as anyone at any any job. It came from that you know that 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 almost drive to prove everyone else wrong. And it, and it turned into a competitive drive, but it also came from those roots in North Carolina or it came to those roots with his family. Obviously. Well, you could see it. And I, I thought that was one of the highlights of the uh, the first mm-hmm. two episodes was you, you kind of got a, a backstory of the foundation that was set, right? From his mm-hmm. mother, from his father, 
from his brothers. And uh, one of my favorite parts thus far is just a little, you know, you know, part of Dean Smith. I mean, you mm. have to be lucky. And uh, part of the luck is having great mentors and people that come in and out of your life. And um, Dean Smith, I mean, what a just a his words and the examples. And you can see the confidence that he, you know, was able to give his players to encourage a freshman, right? You're, you're talking about James Worthy was mm -hmm. probably the premier player in college basketball at that time, or certainly one of, and uh, he was encouraging Michael Jordan in this moment to shoot it when you're open. So, when you have someone that believes in you like that and that gives you that inner confidence, um, that's a very meaningful to, to a young person. And um, I applaud Dean Smith for encouraging and giving that type of confidence to his players, to his program and the people around. That means so much. And you can kind of see, I think they said it when he went from, that's what the point where he went from Mike Jordan to Michael Jordan. And um, he just continued to build on the confidence knowing that confidence is everything, and you can kind of see where it all started or where it all began for him. And we see David Falk coming in. David Falk, of course, talks about Dean Smith running a type ship. Right. Uh, we, we see the letter from uh, Jordan right, back home right, to right, Dolores right. Asking, asking for you know stamps and for money, uh, giving his account info because he's like, I'm at school. I need, I need some help because I'm here in North Carolina, which is great. Uh, you know, Roy Williams said he, he's the best player uh, to ever play here. They had that little exchange and Jordan said he was going to be the best player to ever play here. And he said, young man, you got a long ways to go. And he promised he was going to outwork uh, anybody else. And then of course we get to the fact that, you know, Jordan hits the shot. Yeah, like you said, you know, right. the, it was all set up and, and Dean Smith empowered a freshman and said, you know, Mike, if you're open, uh, you know how, you know, in the coach Smith manner, my, Mike, not Michael, if you're open, knock down the shot. And, and of course, Michael hit the shot. And he said before, you know, that shot kind of, he always, you talk about that confidence that Jordan had. It was the confidence obviously was then cemented by the fact it was a reality. It was a checkpoint and it was his national championship game in the Superdome in New Orleans. 17 million people are watching you. You hit the shot. You win the game, basically. Of course, there's the turnover, a way to Worthy, and, and North Carolina gets the ball back from Georgetown. But you have this moment, and then you saw the interview after, and he's almost, you know, he's a country boy. From you know, you know, he wants to say he's from Wilmington, but he's really from Wallace. Right. So you know, in that 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 freshman North Carolina interview with Jordan, you know, even in Keaton Stadium, my parents were actually there at Keaton Stadium, and they said when Mike Jordan spoke, he was just a little shy. You know, and they they said the same thing with Scotty. You know, like the, these guys, they were almost underdogs at a certain For point. Sure. For they, sure. they grew into who they were, and then once they were who they were, they almost had a, a, a second look like, oh, I really am the man. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> athletically. You know, it's funny. It was, as I was watching those those tapes, especially the the uh, uh, when the Bulls were playing the Boston Celtics, you can yep. get a glimpse of, like, I, I thought I was looking at, like, the feature of the game. Like, Michael Jordan was moving – at a different pace than everyone else on the floor. And mm -hmm. um, you could just see the athletic ability, the explosiveness, how he was covering space. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I think before the series started, they were talking about they were much bigger than them, as if, like, you know, like just because you're seven feet or a seven-footer that you were going to be – that gave you an, an advantage. That was kind of the mindset. Today, you know, I'm just – 
putting it in today's perspective, like small ball is like, well, you got big guys, we have small guys, so we have an advantage, you know? And mm. it was just interesting to watch, to watch him, how athletically he was moving as a young player. I mean, he was just like, you know, he just seemed like he was just all over the place. And uh, it was very impressive to watch, even even now to watch that, I think it was 63 points. And uh, Larry Bird's quote, just every time I hear the quote, I remember I was in college well, watching that game. And when he said that quote, that just, you know, that's not Michael Jordan. That's God disguised as Michael Jordan. That quote to me, mm-hmm. it, 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 it stuck out to me then. And it's even more apparent now that when you see it, you just know it when you see it. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't think hard work gets it. But you, when you see that guy, you just know that there's a, something a little different. And, you know, Larry Bird said it in, in 86. So, again, you know, I always go back. The players know. <laughs> and the, the players, the players know. know. And, they, and, and, mm-hmm. and Bird said it. Like, this guy's a little different. Yeah, like Jordan said in the doc, he said, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the players. And even Isaiah, I want to go like all the way back as far as you're talking about seven footers, right? I mean, Isaiah said that MJ had an extra levitation gear. That was the the quote he had where he was just like, and I remember one time, you know, probably three or four years ago, Isaiah Thomas was on TV and they asked about Jordan and the Jordan rules and the double teams. And Isaiah said, the thing about, think about Michael was, <laughs> is this your, sta- he was is this your stand up? Is this your stand up? <laughs> yeah, no, no, he was like, think about Michael is, you know, he would just jump over and out of a double, team, <laughs> yeah, you know right. what I mean? And like, and, and that's the difference of Michael. And then you mentioned the seven footers in the ACC tournament game in Greensboro that freshman year. Jordan hit four big shots late in that game, and then with seven minutes left, I mean, this is when no shot clock, you know, Dean Smith calls the, calls the dogs off and says, hey, we're running four corners, and they're playing Ralph Sampson. Of course, you and I both right. love Ralph Sampson, but Ralph Sampson can't do anything if he doesn't have the ball. North Carolina wins that game, I think it was 47-45, to 45, but Jordan is on a big stage there. People are like, oh, who's this Mike Jordan kid? Then he goes to the championship game and gets another seven-footer, a freshman, Patrick Ewing. They beat Georgetown. They, Ewing opened the game goaltending the first five shots. Jimmy Black's getting goaltended. James Worthy's getting goaltended. But everyone's amazed by the seven-footer. But Michael Jordan is able to just sort of like sheepishly show, it doesn't matter if you're seven feet tall. Like you said, I, I'm a different level. I, I am – God disguised as a basketball player at times, as Larry Bird said, or a different, I can fly. And, you know, in North Carolina, the mantra, you know, the state, the Wright brothers, they're first in flight. Michael Jordan's first in flight. The man was flying around. He was floating around. And that was, uh, that was like what we were able to see in the doc. Um, and then I want to talk about the transition, right? They talk about in the first episode, Jordan was asked about his transition from college to the NBA. He had the Olympics, obviously, playing and getting the gold medal in 84 with Bob Knight coaching. That was an amazing mm-hmm. team filled with talented guys. Um, but he said it was a pretty, pretty easy transition. They have his third game going against Sidney Moncrief. Sidney Moncrief basically gives the tip of the cap. He was something different. But, but what was that? I mean, obviously you were watching right. basketball that time. What, what was it like to see Jordan obviously switch on from college straight to the pros? Well, um, I didn't learn this till later. Um, every time you make mm-hmm. a transition, right, whether you go from high school to college, that's a totally different game. Uh, when you play or you go from college to the NBA, it's a totally different game. And Michael, J- Michael Jordan's game was – built for the NBA because the NBA game is a game built on spacing, right? You have more space to operate. And when you put his athleticism 
along with his basketball skill level. Um, and I'm just watching the game from a technical standpoint, right? Obviously, he was fun to watch and all the things he was doing. The entertainment value was very, very high. But technically speaking, he was very, very fundamentally sound, right? He had all of the fundamentals. He had all of the footwork. He had a handle. Um, he could do all that he could pass, right hand, left hand. And he had really big hands, which gave him a significant advantage because things that it would normally take a player to do with two hands, he could do with one. So that gave him a significant advantage. When you put that type of, when you put that combination on the floor, that's a lethal combination because there's no counter to speed and quickness. And he had all of the speed and all of the quickness. And he could just do mm-hmm. things that other athletes can't, couldn't do. Like, you know, you might find an athlete who is fast, but not very, you know, quick. You know, or he may be quick, but he's not fast. You may find him, he's made quick and fast, but he's not strong. Well, Michael Jordan was strong. Mm-hmm. He was quick. He was fast. He had the mental toughness. He had the he had the total package. So, and you put him out there where there's, you know, space to operate like it is in the in the professional game. You know, mm-hmm. of course, you know there, there's nothing but you know up 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 upside. And Michael Jordan took it way beyond what we ever ever anticipated or ever thought was possible because he was playing with the he was playing the game with a, a, a whole set of he was playing by different rules than the rest of us mm-hmm. or than the rest of the mm-hmm. players at that time because he was just he was so athletic he was that much more gifted than any player that was playing in the NBA he was a guy at North Carolina where he his first step was so quick they had officials calling travels against him and you know Coach Smith who's you know such a, a nice guy and he's like uh, come on now you know that's not a travel <laughs> he just he's just that quick he's just that quick you know he's just letting people know uh, so yeah that's what you got to think yeah. about Michael Jordan he was that quick that people had never seen right. anything like it of course his nickname was the Black Cat I saw in the documentary there was a sign that said the Black Panther sure. so I guess Jordan Jordan owes some royalties from Disney for yes. being the original Black yes. Panther. Yes. So he's probably probably putting that out to the world. All right, let's get into the episode two, and that starts with the, the running mate, of course, of Michael Jordan. And and MJ said there is no story uh, of Michael Jordan without Scotty because, of course, they they were together for all these championship runs. And that opens up episode two, and Scotty is upset because he says uh, at the celebration for the '97 championship in Game One on the microphone to the whole United Center um, that he basically, you know, it was the end of a journey and end of a run. Um, and, and he lets you know his his feelings out to the right. world. Um, there's some rumors about a trade for Scottie Pippen. All this sort of stuff is going on right now. Uh, in 1997, we opened this episode with Scottie, but the relationship is there where Scotty and Phil and Jordan, everyone knows that this dynasty is ending. So that's where we are. That's the pinpoint of the conversation with Scotty himself and where he is in that moment in time. Yeah, that, that had to be tough for Scotty because you could see that mm-hmm. You know, everyone handles stress and pressure in different ways. And there's no right, there's no wrong. And, and everyone was just trying to keep the train on the track, right? And mm-hmm. Scotty clearly, you know, had an, a, a different view of what was going on. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wrong, because that's your, that's your teammate, right? That's your brother, and you want to support your brother. And mm-hmm. But it was clear that the business of what the business and the decisions that were made had already been made. It didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was tough because, you know, the, looking into the future and what 
was, you know, everyone's always trying to figure out where they fit into this puzzle, into this team, or their future, in this case, as a, as a basketball player. Um, that was tough in many ways. And, um, again, you just try to put everything in its proper compartment and move forward, but you can see how the emo- emotions spilled over, right? And I think I can't remember who said it, but, they, you know, even at a certain point, you got to say, you know what, we still have a job to do. And that was the most important thing. No matter what's going on off the court, we can't allow that to, you know, spill over onto the court. I remember as a, you know, uh, when I first came in the league as a young player, you know, one of the lessons I learned from Bill Cartwright was no matter what's going on, always respect your teammates. Mm-hmm. No matter what's going on, you know, what uh, if the coach isn't playing you as much as you think you should be playing, what does that have to do with me? I'm your teammate. I'm pulling for you. Whatever's going on between mm-hmm. you and management, still play the game and the people that you suit up with and hold that res- hold that responsibility. So it's one of the things that you learn. It's unfortunate. It's a part that you see all the time. Um, so that was nothing new to me. It was just it's probably unique for people to see who did, who otherwise don't get a chance to see that part of the business of professional athletics. Yeah, and Jordan even says in the episode, said, you know, he's talking about, he was asked about Scotty. Eventually he tells him to stop asking about Scotty, but he said, you know, it's tough when you have the appreciation for the fans mm-hmm. and the people in the building, and, and it touches you deep down inside, and that's what we're talking about. That's the, the, the other side of that where Scotty Pippen, he has such an adoration for those fans and those people that supported those Bulls teams. And of course, you know, we saw his story. We see, you know, going from Central Arkansas, from being an right, equipment right, manager right, right. And, and growing basically seven inches out of nowhere. He and Jordan are very similar in that sense. Like they grew into themselves after the fact. Um, and then, of course, we see, you know, your good your good friend, Charles Oakley, Oak. um, de- de- dealing with uh, Scotty Pippen as a rookie, smacking him around. <laughs> at, was, was it good to see Oakley on the screen back in the day? You know, that was Oak. You know, Oak is and, – <laughs> That's that's why you love Charles. You know Charles is mm-hmm. Charles. He's always been Charles. He loves rookie duty. That man. The, the man, man loves rookie loves, duty. The man <laughs> thrives. You know that's that's Oak. But you know what? Uh, how could you not love to play with a with a person like that? Oh, I mean, yes. Charles of is. Then you know I've gotten to know Charles over the years, and you know he's one of my good friends. So, you know what he'll. The one thing about Charles is that you know. In between the lines, you always knew that Charles had your back. And Charles and mm-hmm. Michael are very close. And I can tell you what, Charles would do anything and for Michael. Mm-hmm. And he will do anything for any of his teammates because that's who he is, right? He is, you know, mm-hmm. he's the oak tree. And, um, you know, and for us who know him, and I never played with him, but I got a chance to spend a lot of time around Oak. And, uh, you know, he is – a very fierce competitor himself and uh, him and Michael got along very well and he understood that the other teams were trying to rough him up and do the things that's the way the game was played and Charles was always there as the equalizer to make sure that you know what he was going to get his fair share of pushing or punching or whatever needed to be done at that time. Yeah, he was a stable force, and of course, he was traded away. And right. Jordan, you know that that was the first time that Jordan apparently, you know, he said in the documentary, he's like, I I understood that we were getting better as a team, but again, like you said, 
Oakley was always going to be there for Michael Jordan. So when he loses a guy like that, you know, that, that starts, plants the seed of some sure. of these things that are the dominoes that are later to come in this. And one of the things that was interesting in the episode two, they're talking about, you know, the 1997-1998 Bulls team, and they were losing early on. They were 0-4 on the road. And, you know, Jordan's talking in practice, and this is sort of the, the pre-conversation of this, is Jordan said on Good Morning America, people may think he's an a-hole or whatever it may be, but it came from these moments. And the reason he says is, you know, you don't let people gain confidence, especially if you're a dynasty and you're dominating. So if they see the weaknesses, obviously, you know, they can go after you. Um, and, you know, he even admits in this moment, he said, you know, his focus is to win and it dri drives him insane when he can't. And that sort of speaks to the psyche of who MJ was at this time. And the, to be honest, to this day, he's the same way, just with different things. Sure. But 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 that but that's where he was in that mindset where he was doing anything uh, to find a way and a will to win because that's how, that's how he was eventually made up for so many well, years. Well, you know, I, I think you said it best. You know, you, you know, back then you wanted to make sure that you didn't give anyone any confidence, right? So there was always mental warfare going on during the course of the game, right? And um, if you could destroy someone's confidence, it's better to do it early than late because once someone is confident against you, then that's a new ball game. That's a new challenge. So uh, Michael, that's the way he approached the game. You understood that one, you know, playing the game when you are expected to win is a, a is a different ball game than when you're just trying to find or learn how to win in that league. So uh, it was very important if you are up on top that you make sure that when you are playing the other teams that they don't gain confidence against you because once you play or you're in a battle with a very confident opponent. Now you're in a real street fight. So that, mm -hmm. that to me was a natural understanding of how to play in this league. And I've been on both sides, right? I've been on the one side where you win. I've been on the other side where you're trying to figure out how to win as a group. And then I've been on the other side where you just don't feel you have a chance when the other team just has your number. So it, it made total sense to me, but you know, for, for Michael, he was constantly trying to figure out how to take the confidence of his opponent. And when mm -hmm. you lose three, four games in a row, you know, that can, that, that can change an entire season. And um, you know what? That's what the good teams do. They make adjustments and they find a way to get it done in those times of need. And as a team in the East at the time, obviously you're on the Hornets. I mean, is there anything that you can speak to as far as you being in the Hornets locker room or you guys in the East saying – hey, Scotty's not playing, uh, Dennis Rodman's not right. reporting, uh, Michael seems to be upset with everybody else on the team, uh, we might have a shot here down in Charlotte. Is there anything like that going on around the league? Are they that centralized that everyone's talking about what's well, going yeah, on in Chicago? Well, the, the thing is, is when you, you know, when you watch those teams and you watch that team in 97, 98, right? If you, mm. if you can kind of replay in your mind, the young Michael Jordan did it all. He was on defense, offense. He pushed the ball up the floor. He scored. He initiated. He did it all. By the time he got to 97, 98, Michael Jordan was basically a center in a two-guards body. Mm -hmm. Right? Scotty did the majority of the ball handling. You know, I think it was Steve Kerr who said Scotty was kind of the glue to our team because Scotty did all of the other intangible things, right? He would defend a little bit. He would initiate the offense. He would score a little bit. He would do all of the things that kept the team playing together as a team. 
And then when we needed to win the game, we could dump it in to Michael Jordan and he could create shots, not only for himself, but for the team. So the 97-98 Jordan was basically a just, he was a, a dominant scorer. He was a dominant mm-hmm. scorer at that point, right? He wasn't the same athlete that he was younger in his career. But Scottie Pippen was able to do all of the other things that a great player could do to complement what Michael Jordan was at that stage of his career. So it was kind of early in Jordan's career, you know, he could just go out and play. It didn't matter. The guy would score 60-something points all by himself. Later in mm-hmm. his career, he was just as effective, but he did it in a, in a different way. He picked and chose his time. He gave the other players space on the floor. He knew where to operate. He knew how to accept the double team. And he was just a different player. You know, he got the same results, but he just did it in a different way. Yeah, once he le- once he lost Charles Charles Oakley, he obviously had to figure out a different way to to play basketball because he didn't have the enforcer uh, there. Well, you know what? I would say this though. <laughs> I don't know if they show this. Bill Cartwright, Bill Cartwright. Okay, mm-hmm. Charles Oakley was an enforcer, right? But when mm-hmm. you look at the how the teams were constructed back then, you had to have a seven footer who could play one-on-one defense in the post, right? Post mm-hmm. defense isn't something that you see often in an, in an NBA t- game today. And the one thing you had to do is, right, you had to be able to at least defend whether it was, you know, Akeem Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, all of those centers, and you had to be able to defend them one-on-one mm-hmm. to some degree. You couldn't just bail out like you do now where everyone just comes down, switch, or her double team every time someone touches it anywhere near the basket. You actually had to take on a challenge. So Bill Cartwright's toughness and what he brought to the game because he was he was a seven footer, right? Bill was every bit of seven feet seven, seven one or so. And he was a rim protector, even though he didn't block a lot of shots. You weren't just driving in and getting him layups on Bill, right? There was a reason we called him the teacher. Right, the teacher was mm-hmm. going to teach you, <laughs> Tate, <laughs> why he has that nickname. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he was just mm-hmm. a different type of enforcer because he could defend one on one in the post, which was mm-hmm. that's a huge significant advantage if you don't have to double team every single time a Patrick Ewing or an Akeem Olajuwon or David Robinson or who all these great centers were at the time because. Basically, the game was played through the post at that time. So it was a different mm-hmm. way of, pl- of playing. But Bill has all the respect of all of the other bigs in the league. Trust me on that one. Oh, of course. And we all know that you have a, uh, a big soft spot for all the oh, bigs. Oh, I, 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 so I we, love yeah. the bigs. You know, I, the, the, <laughs> the, the teacher, hey, 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 he was called the teacher for a reason. <laughs> well, now we're talking about teachers. Let's talk about a university because uh, I, I want to get it as we keep going through the doc. Jordan broke his foot, obviously, yep. in his second year. He's rookie of the year. Um, he's a sensation. Everyone in Chicago is very excited because, like they said in the documentary, it was more of a Bears town. You could find Blackhawks fans. You could find, obviously, right. Cubs fans, north side of town, Sox fans, south side of town. We, we know the drill with all that. But Jordan was bringing people together. He gets hurt, obviously, his foot, left foot. 
uh, and he's out, but he goes and rehabs at North Carolina. Um, he is told, obviously, by the front office and by management, do not play basketball. We all know Jordan had a uh, co- uh, you know a contract uh, clause in his contract for the love of the game, so he could play basketball whenever he goes down. He's not not allowed to play basketball. He obviously does play basketball. He goes from one on one, like he says, to three on three, to five on five. He says when he comes back, his calf, that was the left calf, is stronger than his right <laughs> calf um, because he had been playing in Woolen and Fetzer and in Chapel Hill for so long. Jerry Krause obviously had no idea. Um, he w- was obviously looking for a lottery pick, you know, so says the documentary. He had Jordan on a seven minutes a half uh, minutes restriction. Jordan is, is yelling, fuck these guys, Stan. Stan. Poor, poor coach Stan uh, is in the middle of all right. this. Uh, so so we get all this as we're, as we're unfolding with the doc to get the background on this. But what, what does that say about Jordan a little bit there? Obviously, you know, having that mindset to – it's not that he's defying the front office, but he has such a belief and desire to get back on the court. Well, what this is saying is, you know, Tate, I, I would – we all, when we come into this league, right, there's really no preparation to becoming a pro, right? We all dream of, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or many of us dream of playing professional sports, right? We have these fond memories, right, mm-hmm. of, hey, I played high school basketball or college basketball or college college sports. And then suddenly you have these fantasies of playing professional sports, right, and what that is and mm-hmm. You remember the good times. You remember the championships, and the, you know we're talking about the Bears. You know the Bears and all mm-hmm. of those things. Yeah, the right? Bears. Yep, eighty-five. Yep. What's eye-opening to every athlete who's ever had an opportunity to play is you see the business, and no one ever prepares you for that moment. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I and I'm just you know, I was watching it. You 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 have those moments where you suddenly realize all of the things that you dreamt about as a kid of playing and reaching your height, you walk in and, and you, and I remember it happened to me and I'm just, as I was watching the film, you go, no one told me that about this part, why no one prepared me for this business. You know, everyone talks Mm -hmm. about competition and winning and you play for the love of the game and all of those things, right? I'm going to work hard and you know, okay. All of those things, right? No one ever prepares you for what this really is. It's a business. Mm-hmm. So Michael's education on the business came in year two. This is what this is. And mm-hmm. when I walked into the Bulls locker room for the first time, my education came in year one. Like I, I wasn't there to develop. I wasn't there to, you know, find out who I could be. You were here to do your job. <laughs> right? You were here mm-hmm. to do your job. And to watch Michael Jordan's education, if you will, as a young player who loved the game, who had all these wonderful experiences playing the game, competing, getting better, suddenly – he was faced with really understanding what this business was all about. And that is the part of professional athletics that no one is prepared for. No one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to a Michael's credit, he took it for what it was mm-hmm. and didn't lose his love and passion for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember my moment, right? My 
my moment where it's like you have these moments where you're going to figure out as a professional athlete, either I'm going to be a pro or I'm probably won't survive up here. Right. Mm -hmm. And my defining moment for myself was I just made a decision that no matter what was going on, I wasn't going to allow anyone to steal my joy. That was my mm -hmm. defining moment. Like I made a, I made a decision that, okay, this is a business. I was upset at all of the people who I thought had my best interests at heart. Why didn't they tell me that this was a business? Why didn't they tell me mm -hmm. that I was here to do a job, right? I wasn't here to make friends. I wasn't here to, because they liked me. I was here because I could do something for them. And when I say do something for them, I was here because that was my job. I was getting paid to make those shots, right? I was getting paid to win basketball games. And if I didn't win games, they were going to get somebody else in there that could do it better than I could. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, to watch how quickly he learned that lesson and still kept his innocence to me is one of the more unique things because he suffered an injury. He suffered possibly – a career-ending injury. Yeah, 90%, 10%. Yeah, yep. so for him to have that lesson really shows you how fragile, how small it is before, you know, if he plays and he gets hurt, maybe we never see Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you can see the sense of urgency that he played with, right? Mm -hmm. When they say this about him it is true he played the game as if it was his last every single time i don't know where that came from i don't know how he learned it i know there were many a times i walked out there on the floor tate and i i wanted to do well i wanted to play well and it just wasn't there mm -hmm. how he was able to master and overcome that and and find a way to play even when he wasn't playing well is a miracle. Like some things you just, you learn, you find out some things you, you look at and you go, I don't know how he's doing this. And for him to be able to find a way, right. To play just the game over in France. Why was he playing that hard in a preseason game? For the fans, for the people. Okay. Because he knew that he has a responsibility to perform. And he took on that responsibility. Either you have that or you don't. That's not something you learn. That's not something you teach. When you find a person who takes stewardship over what he's doing, and Michael Jordan, and I, and I, and I, and I know this about him, he, he felt then as a player to leave the game better than when he found it. So the stewardship mm -hmm. that he, he accepted, that responsibility of understanding what he meant to this league, his relationship to this league, his relationship to the game, to the fans, like to be able to absorb all of those responsibilities and perform at that level time and time after time again, that's just not something that's, where do you learn that? You either have it or you don't, you know, you know, Tate, I, I'll say this, you know, I get asked this question and it's always fun, right? Who's the greatest player to ever play. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and you know, I, I, sometime I'll, I'll play around with it and, you know, and, and my son and I, who's the greatest, you know, of course my son's going to tell me LeBron's the greatest player. And then I'll go back and I'll say this guy, you'll say the sugar. Yeah. Man. I'll say, the say Michael Richardson. Time. He'd be like, who is that? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, you got to go to YouTube it. Right. But <laughs> as a ex player, as a player who had, and I say this with great humility because I was humble to have an opportunity to play, you know, I, I don't, because I play, I can't say that there's really a gr- the greatest of all time because of all of the great players who played, right? Like, if you said Bill Russell was the greatest player and he won, what, like 11 championships? 11. As yeah. a player, like, that's a good argument. If you said Wilt Chamberlain was the greatest player because he scored 100 points in a game, I can't argue that. You know, this mm-hmm. guy behind me, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scored 38,000 points with just one shot. I can't argue that. If you said Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Tim Duncan, Kobe, Shaq, LeBron, I can't argue that. Mm. But what I can argue is this, though, Tate, is when you ask me who is the greatest player, there's two things in the NBA or professional sports that matters. All right. The first is the bottom line. The bottom line is what we're talking about here. You say who's the greatest. All of those players that I named had a huge effect on the bottom line of why you play sports. They all won. They had an effect on winning. Some more than others, but they all had an effect on winning. And then you play the game for the business, which is the entertainment, right? And when I say the entertainment, which is actually putting people in the seats, that's the business. That's the Mm -hmm. business. That's why they're building these arenas, right? So if you ever look at the NBA logo, right? Right in the little, down below, right right below the logo, it says NBA Entertainment. The bottom line is you're going to win. You got to win. That's the bottom line. Winning affects the bottom line. But... Putting people in the seats is what we call the top line (laughs) in this business. And I will argue and say it here. If you're talking about the bottom line and the top line, Michael Jordan is the greatest player to ever play. He was the first athlete. And if you start comparing players and business and all of those things and you put them all together, the top line and the bottom line of what this business is all about, Whatever this is, I don't I don't know if it's just basketball anymore. I don't know if it's entertainment. But if you put this business or whatever it is we're working in, right? It's some type of hybrid of sports and entertainment. He is the greatest athlete to ever do it. He's the greatest because he was the first one that affected the bottom line and he affected the top line. People came to see him (laughs) and he had a vision unlike any other athlete since before him and since him, he was, he was endorsing things and, and shoes and all the other things. No one has done that better. So when I look at this entire picture, right, I I don't know who's the greatest player, but I know Jordan is somewhere in there. If he's not one, he's certainly two. But when you put the entire picture together, 
since 1946, no one has affected the game like this man has. No one has. And you can put that against in all sports. And that's the, that's the business that no one talks about because Tate, in the end, professional sports is a business. And we can talk about sports, but the truth of it is, you know what? You can see the examples over and over again of why athletes have this emotional outburst that they have because they are human. They want mm -hmm. to be respected. They want to, you know, look, people pour their heart and souls into this. I get what Scotty was saying. I'm not saying it was right, but we see it and we see it over and over again, express itself in many different ways. And, um, and as I look at it, as a person who played it, I give Michael all, I give him all the credit because he was able to bridge the two. He, he's, he's done it like no other player has ever done it before, in, in my opinion, in the history of sports. And it's funny when you talk about, uh, this is the last point I want to make, and then we'll wrap up and get out of here, and because we got the last two, you know, the first two episodes down of The Last Dance. But when you talk about the business, and you talk about Jerry Krause and Jordan, and obviously in the second episode, and, and you talk about, you know, the Pacers game, and when Paxson hits the shot, and he said he just, he just kind of threw that shot in, but Jordan's on the bench. And, uh, you know, he's yelling at Stan to put him in the game, but they win that game, and then Stan locks the locker room <laughs> from Jerry Krause to get in there. And, you know, Michael Jordan, like you said, that's the moment that he realizes he, there was a mistrust because it was a violation of, of, of the sports code to him. Like you said, this is the, the differentiator between what is a business and what is a game. Well, the, the game says one thing, the business says right. this. The business says go for the lottery pick and go for the, the future of the franchise. The game says win and go to the playoffs and what inevitably happens and i think the 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 luck or the beauty or the genius or whatever you want to call it of the jordan experience right is that in 1986 michael jordan on a limits on a time restriction is able to will the bulls into an eighth seed to then play the greatest team some call of the 20th century which is the 1986 celtics for him to be an eighth seed to go against the number one seed basically like a, a, a bull coming out like because he hasn't been able to play right, right. full games like just like a maniac at that point he even said he was it was in a crazed state against that team but you talk about the business of basketball for the NBA the fact that that version of Michael Jordan is playing in the playoffs in prime time against that Celtics team with that many people watching that is business of basketball that is like you said the top line and the bottom line the bottom line is michael jordan playing that top level is going to lead the bottom line if he is a star that people want to come see because if he's able to put up those points and larry bird and madge johnson and everyone else and kevin McHale and you know the poor rick carlisle said he was running to his mommy in a highlight because jordan's dunking all right, over right. him i mean th this is prime time because Michael Jordan made a statement and Jerry Krause was doing what was best for business, which is the lottery pick in the franchise. But Jordan's doing what's best for business bigger than what is the Chicago Bulls. And it's funny when he talked about Wilmington, you know, he talked about the, the racism and stuff that he saw in North Carolina. And he was like, I wanted to be bigger than this. And he was obviously he went to North Carolina and Chapel Hill. That's bigger than Wilmington or sure. Wallace, North Carolina. But then he goes to Chicago, which is bigger than he's a country boy in the city and everyone loved him. That's bigger. But still, when he was in Chicago, he wasn't thinking the Bulls. He's thinking the NBA. So that's a that's a that, that creates conflict already in and of itself within the business of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, because the business of Michael Jordan is bigger than the Bulls, which is unheard of in the world of athletes and sport. And that that whole thing leading up to the fact 
that Jordan is getting the cosign of those guys in that moment in time in 1986, that leads to a 1992 Barcelona experience right. or a 1997 Paris experience, which is a global experience. And, and all that is, is to say, when you're talking about bottom line, top line, that is what Michael Jordan is. And we see it, obviously, in these first two episodes of the Dallas. Yeah, I mean, look, we saw it. We saw what it was. We saw what you know how this kind of played itself out, and you know, you know, take when I when I played, I saw it right. But instead of getting frustrated mm-hmm. and upset about it, I was I was curious. I was the curious kid to say, okay, mm-hmm. I don't have to agree with Tate. I don't have mm-hmm. to agree with management, but I have a responsibility to myself to want to understand why you do what you do. So mm-hmm. that was why when I got done playing, I wanted to, I wanted to work in the front office mm-hmm. because I wanted to truly understand how and why I was drafted. <laughs> I wanted mm-hmm. to really like, how did people, how do you say this player is better than that player? How do you trade for a player? How do mm-hmm. you identify a player in free agency? How do you build a team? So I wasn't interested in my feelings or emotions. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in one. I was that player. I was that kid that was always curious to understand because in my house growing up, you know, it was okay for me not to agree with you, but it, it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't okay for me not to understand. So mm-hmm. I went and worked in the front office cause I wanted to see. And you know, when I watch things now, like trust the process and it's become a thing. This trust the process and tanking and all of those things, that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Okay. As a player, as an ex player, you have everyone has a time. <laughs> everyone has a has a moment. I don't have next year. I never had a significant injury as a player, right? I never, you know, knock on wood, I never had an ACL or broke my foot or did anything. But, you know, not many people know this, Tate. In my, uh, when I graduated from college, and at that time, before guys were, you know, everyone had to play before they got drafted, I broke my hand, mm-hmm. actually my left hand, the very first day of uh, the pre-draft camp. Mm-hmm. It made an impression on me because that was the first time that I ever had an injury and I had this sense of urgency of saying, I don't know if and when it'll happen again, but I can't allow myself to fall into that dark place that all injured athletes can fall into. So I get what what management is doing because the management is always thinking about building the future. The players should think of only playing now because you don't know when it's going to happen. The problem is what's the happy median in between there. So, mm-hmm. you know, we could talk about this. We'll have more things to talk about, but I will say this, you know, uh, it was a great episode one, great episode two. And uh, there's a lot to talk about here. And, um, uh, and someday maybe you and I get an opportunity to build a team. How about that? And then I'll, uh, and, yeah. and then Tate, will be that one executive saying, well, you know what? I got to get this next great player. You know, Kevin Durant's in the draft. (laughs) I got to get him. (laughs) 
Oh, if it's Kevin Durant, I got Kevin Durant and Taiwan Lawson together. Uh, you know that already. Uh, I would never be saying anybody could be traded uh, like Jerry Krause is saying because I would never want to ruffle the feathers. Of well, Scottie I will Pitt say this and, as uh, an executive. I will say this. And, and yes. I, I will say this. Mm-hmm. If no one calls you with a trade, mm-hmm. that means you have really, really bad players. <laughs> an, an empty cupboard, as they yes. say. So, yes. When you have players that other people want, that's a really mm. good thing. Now, that's a, good that's thing. a really good thing. Because if you, have, if you don't have anything that anyone wants, you're probably not going to be there <laughs> very long. <laughs> that's very true. That's very okay? true. So very I don't true. know if you should say that. <laughs> it's like one of those things mm. that you should probably just go, yeah, we love Tate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love that. We love but that. I would tell you what, if you call the other 29 teams in the league and you go, hey, what do you think of Tate? They go, this guy should be out of the league. Let me give you a translation. You're probably going to get fired. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's not going to be a good year. It's not, it's gonna not going to be a good year. So it's like one of those things that you, it's a probably, you probably just don't say anything, you know, if that makes sense. You don't say anything yeah. about it. You just kind of like, we're trying we're you know we're just we're just trying to get through the trying to get through the year and uh, exactly yeah, that's that's what this podcast is we're just trying to get through we're pushing through uh, we're always making waves doing our best here on this program and this is after the last dance and that's that we got uh, obviously BJ some exciting things coming up here on uh, after the last dance with the director of the last dance Jason Hare coming up on Tuesday, which is going to be a big program for us. We're going to have a bunch of special guests over the the next few weeks, and you and I obviously will be breaking all things uh, The Last Dance down, and we can't wait. It's going to be a good time. It'll be great. I can't wait to get Jason on, and uh, we can start acting, asking, acting as if we know a lot about entertainment, and uh, we got some tough questions here on pushing through. Oh, yeah, we're going to have the most pressing questions, and uh, this is Pushing Through. This is after the last dance, and we will be back on Tuesday with the director, Jason Hare. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on Tuesday. Huh.